My name is Rob, and I get to serve here, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. Uh, as we know, it's a long weekend. It's a wonderful long weekend, and we get to enjoy the outdoors and all of God's good creation, but we also get to celebrate and reflect on His goodness in our lives in church today. So thanks for joining us online or in person. A few years ago, I used to serve as a youth pastor. I got to be a youth pastor in this great church. I loved being there and working with young people. It was a church plant. It was in the south area of Mississauga called Port Credit, which was equally beautiful because you were on the lake. And it wasn't like the gross part of Lake Ontario. It was the nice part of Lake Ontario. There was Credit River. It was beautiful. I loved being there. And I loved it because I also got to do all kinds of fun stuff with these young people. So I'd get to teach them and share with them who God is and try to connect them with faith and, and Jesus and try to figure all these things out. A lot of those kids didn't come from church homes. We were a church plant, and so there's a lot of like newer people to church life who were coming to there. So a big part of my priority was trying to connect them with the Bible and who God is, and I love doing that. And for a lot of them, they didn't have an understanding of how the New Testament came about, and maybe some of us here don't even have that understanding, and I'd love to talk to you about that, or why we have an Old Testament and a New Testament. And so it was coming around Easter, and I wanted to help them understand uh, the significance of the Last Supper. And for those of us who maybe aren't as familiar with that story, is that the significance is rooted in Passover. And Passover, if you have Jewish friends, or maybe you are from a Jewish tradition, you're very familiar with it. Uh, but for the rest of us, we aren't as familiar. And it's a very uh, historical ritual meal that was celebrated by people. And so I thought this would be great. It's called the Seder meal. This would be great to do with these young people. And I've done it with some of you here as well. I wasn't really well-versed in it. I didn't know it that well, but I was like, okay, I'm going to try this. So I Googled, how do you do a Seder meal? And the first thing it told me is you have to get a Seder plate. I thought, yes, I will get a Seder plate. And if you've been in my office, you've seen my setter plate right here. It's lovely. It's not very functional to eat off of, so it's not that kind of plate. But it's got these nice little pockets, and I thought, I'm going to get one of those, and I obviously did get one. Now, this is before I understood how amazing Amazon was. And I had to find a store that would sell me a setter plate. And the problem with living in Toronto area is living in Toronto area in general. Like, that's just a problem. But... We were in south near the lake, and so I tried to look up, where do I buy a setter plate? And I found out there was a store 40 kilometers away. That's not bad, right? 40 kilometers, you guys drive 40 kilometers. Some of you drove 40 kilometers to get here this morning. That's fantastic. But when you live in Toronto, 40 kilometers is like three hours. And it was awful. But I bought this plate, and it basically took me a whole day to get this plate, but I was excited to have this plate because this plate is a plate that commemorates the Passover meal. And each little pocket had a little something that you'd put in it. And these little somethings were meant to remind the people of Israel, the people who have a historic connection with the Exodus story, and also for us Christians, what the Passover was all about. And so in the plate, you I had to write it down because I don't always remember this, but you had these six different spots, and in the middle you'd have matzah bread. Some of us are pretty familiar with matzah bread. It's really dry cracker. You had three of them. Half of it you would break and you would hide, and the children would be meant to find it at some point. It kind of connects to a Levitical story about two goats who leave. One is killed, one's put in the desert. We can talk about that sometime. But these matzahs were meant to kind of represent and connect people to their story also of when the people were in the Exodus, they used this manna, this stuff that fell from the sky and made these flat breads. And so they connected to that story as well. 
But also when there were these bitter herbs called maror. And these maror were usually like horseradish. So I just bought like prepared horseradish, extra hot. Those kids loved me. And uh, you just eat some of that horseradish. And the idea of the bitter herb is to remind you of the bitterness of slavery. And then you would have the charo set, which was my favorite. It's basically apples and walnuts and cinnamon. It was like the best part of the whole thing. And some people put wine in it. I don't think I did because these were all teenagers. And it's tasty. It's, I'd eat it like just for fun. But you have this, and it's meant to represent the mortar that was used to build while in slavery. So like the bricks and stuff like that. And then you had the carpus, which is usually like a lettuce or a celery, which again is meant to be kind of bitter. And you would dip it into the salt water that would remind you of the tears the people shed while they were in slavery. And it would remind you again the bitterness of the experience that these people had. Then you had something um, called the zorah, which was like a lamb bone that you would put on there. You wouldn't actually eat the lamb. You'd have a piece of lamb to remind you that in the Passover they killed the lamb and the blood was put around the doors so that the so that death would pass over the people. And then you would have a hard-boiled egg. And this hard-boiled egg was meant to represent the hope of what is to come once you are freed from the slavery. And so this meal is a very ritualistic, historical meal that if you're a person of Jewish tradition, you would celebrate, and it would remind you of how significant it was that God rescued his people. In one author that I read, and I wish I could remember who it was, it was a rabbi, he said that for Jews, they eat their history. And I love that picture. Because this meal was more than just a meal. It was a piece that connected them to their story. It connected them to who they are and why it mattered. And also, most of all, who God is and what he's done. And so when they celebrate Passover, they're connecting with this ancient story to remind them of the goodness of God. Now, I can't tell you if any of those teenagers remember it. I'm going to pretend like they did because I was just like the best youth pastor ever. But we'll see. But the reality is that the story of Scripture is like a history that should be eaten. It's a story that is around the table. And that's why we're in this series right now. We're going to be looking specifically at the meals that Jesus shared with people. If you read the Gospels, Jesus eats a lot. Good thing he also walked a lot. But Jesus, as he shares these meals, he gives us insight into what it means to be a follower of him. He gives us insight into what it means to be human. And he gives us insight into some of these historic meals that he participates in and invites us to participate in as well. And so we're going to start by what I think is the most important meal, the one we call the Last Supper, the one that we have this table out in front of us for, for communion. Or in some traditions, we'd call it the Eucharist. And I want to look at Luke's gospel and explore the story of the meal that Jesus shared with his closest followers and also try to understand what it means for us today. This, for some of us, if we've been to church for a long time, we've heard the story. Uh, I've preached on it multiple times, especially around Easter. It's kind of like the go-to. You kind of have to. We hear it, like if you're in a Baptist tradition, once a month you hear something about it because you have these tables in front of you and you have these elements or sacraments, depending on your tradition. But what was the meal that Jesus shared? 
Why was he sharing it with his followers? And what was he inviting them into as they shared it? In effect, what are we remembering when we do this together? So Luke chapter 22 is where we're going to look. In Luke chapter 22, we're going to start at verse 7. And the synoptic gospels, that means Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels. They're all interconnected. John is a little bit different. They all tell the story relatively similar. Mark and Matthew are the most similar. Luke has a few variations in it, and so I wanted to focus on Luke. Luke is emphasized for historical accuracy. That's part of the tradition of Luke. Luke was written by an individual who, uh, in his community, would be known for being accurate, and it would be a priority for him. And he was writing from a Greek or a Gentile perspective, so a non-Jewish perspective, and wanted people to have a depth of understanding of the significance of these events. And so as he was inspired to write them down, this is how he recorded them. So it says this, starting at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had been sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. So, starts off setting, Passover, right? A good story, you need to understand the setting. It's setting is the Passover meal. What we just talked about with this plate, it's that eating of their history. It's that memory of what God has done. It's rooted deeply in the reality that God is the God who rescues. God is the God who frees his people, who invites them into something more than a life of slavery and more than a life of oppression. He invites them into life. And so likely, Jesus would have had the similar elements that I would have on this plate. Likely, he would have bitter herbs. In fact, he'd actually follow this pretty ritualistically because that's what they did. This is an old tradition. While there are some changes that have happened over time, the roots stay the same. There are multiple breads, multiple wines, and this meal you share together, reminding you that God passed over and you were saved. And so that's the setting. And he says to Peter and John to go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. He says, where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asked, Where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. Now, I don't know about you, but this laying out of the story feels a little uncomfortable. If I'm carrying a jar, I'm going to go fill my jar of water, and then some people just start following me, I get a little nervous. But for some reason, they are told, this is what you do. You follow this person with this jar, and you go to their home. Now, if these people who followed me came to my home, and I went in my home, I'd probably be like, let's lock the door. But he says, then ask them to go in. It's a completely different culture where this type of thing wasn't that abnormal. They're a culture that is deeply rooted in hospitality, that if you ask to come in, they let you in. It's a great insult not to do that. It's a great insult not to care for someone who asks to come in. Completely different than how we live our lives. So we have to understand how they live their life. They have this understanding that if someone says, can I come in for dinner, you would say, absolutely. I made extra. Not our culture, their culture. 
So the setting is it's Passover. Passover preparations probably been already been happening in that home. Those people probably had a little bit extra, but probably not 12 disciples extra. But they were told to follow this man with the jar, or person with the jar, and go to their home and ask to go in. It says, they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. As he's reclining at the table, meals ready, closest friends, around the table, he says, I have waited so long for this. This is the meal I've been waiting for. I'm going to suffer. Probably not the best conversation starter. And I'm not going to eat it again until fulfillment of the kingdom of God. The context of the kingdom of God is one that we can easily overlook because we often have this idea about it that maybe isn't as close to what the Bible actually says as we think. But the kingdom of God is kind of the theme that runs through all of Scripture. The kingdom of God is this theme that is essential to understand what Jesus was doing. And it's not a secret as to what it is. He explains it over and over again. But sometimes we actually got caught up in some medieval history and medieval beliefs and mistook it for something it never was meant to be. But for his followers, they had this understanding that if he's using this language of the kingdom of God, there's certain things that they're looking for in this. And the first one is they're looking that the kingdom is a place where God dwells. God dwells in his kingdom. So a king lives in his kingdom. So if we read in Genesis, we read the story of the Garden of Eden, and it says that God dwelt among them. He walked with his people until sin comes in. If we read John 1, 1, and we have this beautiful poetic language that connects the story of creation to the birth of Jesus, and it says, and Jesus made his dwelling among them. Where the kingdom of God is, God dwells with his people. But he doesn't just live there, he also has dominion over it. He is the king of the space. And so as the king, he has instruction and guidance and restrictions. And he's the leader of that space. And those who dwell in the kingdom are subject to that king who has dominion. But not just that, they also have a dynasty that they step into. The Apostle Paul talks about it multiple times that we who are followers of Jesus are co-heirs to the kingdom that he has brought forth. We are co-heirs to what is to come, that we will rule with him in this recreated goodness of world that he invites us to. And so this kingdom that Jesus is speaking of is where God is king, where God dwells, he has dominion, but also a dynasty that extends beyond the immediate satisfaction of our wants and our needs of right now that leads into eternity. And this kingdom, Jesus said, if you read through the Gospels, is happening now 
but also not yet, because it's not fulfilled. And so at this point in the story, at this meal that Jesus is about to share with his people, his closest friends, people he loves, he says, I'm not going to eat it again until that kingdom is fulfilled. So there's a not yet that are waiting to happen. So the text continues in verse 17. It says, after taking the cup, now in the Passover meal, there's typically four cups, I believe, of, of wine that are drunk. Um, and they each have a symbolic reading that goes with it. But he says, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So again, there's this emphasis on this kingdom of God to come. Something that they're waiting for, that they're wanting, they're hoping for. So as they celebrate this meal, he's rooting it in. Remember how God rescued you in that Passover story? Well, that God is king, and we're waiting for that kingdom to be fully revealed to us. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. He gave it to them, saying, This is my body that's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which I, is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. So as Jesus is celebrating this meal, as he's celebrating this meal with them and rooting it in their history, but also in their hope to come of the kingdom of God, he's saying, I'm going to be betrayed. He's following all the rituals of the meal, demonstrating that he's a part of this hope to come. He says, I'm going to be betrayed. And then they start to argue about who's going to do it. But as he's doing this, he kind of ends it off with this statement and says that, you know, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so what does that mean? For us in our tradition, um, in the Baptist tradition, we call it symbolic. We don't, we don't have all the same traditions as other churches or even the early church has around it. And so we have these, we call them elements. Um, some traditions would call them sacraments. And we would take them and say, well, this is what we do in remembrance of him. But is that really what Jesus is getting to? Is he really getting to, let's take our little piece of bread, let's take our juice, because we don't use wine, and let's reflect and remember? The word that gets used for this celebration in other traditions would be Eucharist. And Eucharist comes from the words that just before Jesus does anything, where he says he gives thanks, comes from the Greek either Eucharisteo or Eucharizomai. And this word eucharizomai, which is, is kind of interesting, Paul uses it more than Luke does, but eucharizomai is a breakup of a few different words. Eu, uh, E-U, which is the first part, uh, which has as the word good. So it's, it's Hebrew, it's this understanding of good. Charizomai is two words, but also one word. Charis, which is the word for grace, but when it's charizomai, it's to freely give. So this word is good, Freely give grace. When you give thanks, when you celebrate this meal, Jesus invites you into eucharizomai, 
He invites you into eucharizomai. He invites you to give freely the good gift of grace. When he invites us to this meal, when he invites us to the table, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Give the good gift of grace freely. When we sit around the table or when we come and walk up a little later, we are invited to give the good gift of grace and also receive it. And so as Jesus is celebrating this meal, he's inviting them into this gift, this good gift of grace. One in which he says, I'm going to suffer, not just suffer, I'm going to be betrayed by one of these people I'm giving this good gift of grace to around this table. If you've ever wondered what it feels like to be betrayed, I would imagine this would hurt the most. People he spent three years of his life with, people who were deeply invested in him and he in them, who he is offering this goodness, this grace, saying, you're going to betray me. I've never been betrayed that bad. But I'm sure if I do, and maybe you have, I can hopefully look to Jesus as the giver of this good grace to find healing from it. So as Jesus is around this table, he has given thanks, reminded them the history that they are about to eat, that they are to enter into the story of the God who rescues, who passes over, and they are to freely give this good gift to others, even though he's going to be betrayed. And so you would think, at least I would think, I could be wrong, I would think it's that I'm sitting at a table with Jesus, and Jesus is telling me all these things, and I'm kind of understanding, maybe a little, not so much, about this kingdom of God where God freely gives this good gift of grace, where he dwells with his people, where he has dominion over all creation, and we are going to be co-heirs for a dynasty to come. And I'm thinking, this is amazing. This is great, Jesus. Thank you so much. I would think that as we're eating this meal, as we're remembering our history and stepping into our future together, I'd be like, yeah, I want to give this good gift of grace. I want to be that kind of person, Jesus. I want to be the kind of person that people look at and they say, hey, you are like the Eucharist. You just give yourself to everybody. And I would think that the people who spent three years with him would feel the same way. But the text tells us something differently. The text amazingly goes like this. It says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. So Jesus is just talking about, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, one of you here is going to do it. And they're like, oh no, not me, who's going to do it? And then they start to fight, well, I'm better than them. I'm better than so-and-so. Peter's probably like, I'm better than all of you. And they're arguing about this. And Jesus, who's just had this beautiful meal, celebrated this richly rooted in history story about the God who rescues, and he is part of that story. He is that God who is to invite them into that rescue to be the good gifts of grace that are given in his kingdom. And it's like, now you're fighting? If you've ever had a meal with children where they start to fight, you've worked all day to do it, and you know, you've You've got this beautiful meal, and then you sit at the table, and they're like, I don't like broccoli. I love broccoli. What's wrong with you? And you're like, what the heck is this? There's not even broccoli on the table. What's going on? Right? It's like Jesus with a bunch of little children who are just arguing amongst themselves. He's prepared this great meal for them. Well, he didn't prepare it, but in the sense of giving himself, he prepared it. He says, this is your good gift of grace. 
and they just fight. And he goes on, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you will be like the youngest, and the one who rules will be like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my Father conferred on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus says, stop being silly. You're arguing about stuff that doesn't matter. If you want to be great, be the least. If you want to be served, you should serve. That's the way of this kingdom. And when you do that, God is going to show you this kingdom and show you that you are part of this kingdom and invite you into this dynasty to come where you will sit on thrones. All around a table, this is happening. Jesus is inviting his closest followers into a life that's completely different than the life they've just been living. To say, you are part of this kingdom, this kingdom where God dwells, where God has dominion, and you are part of his dynasty of the life to come. And he roots it in this meal that they're sharing. A meal in which he says, my suffering and death will bring this kingdom about. There's a now and a not yet. He is at work and has been at work, but there's all much more to hope for and to participate in. So what does it mean to share this meal with Jesus? What does it mean to be invited, as we're going to do just momentarily, to this table that churches around the world have on Sundays or other days of the week? Different traditions do it differently, for sure. But what does it mean to come forward? And say, I want to be at this meal with Jesus. I want to be around the table with Jesus. Well, first, it means to freely accept the good gift of grace that Jesus offers you. To come to this table and not understand that what Jesus is talking about at this table, his death, his ultimate resurrection, his invitation to be part of this kingdom, is a good gift for you. And to not accept that gift is to not come to the table. When we come to the table, when we sit around this table and share the meal with Jesus, we've accepted the good gift of his grace. That we, while still sinners, were forgiven. That he died for us. And he rose again. And through his resurrection, we were invited into life in all of its fullness. We're invited to so much more than we experience in every moment of our days. To accept this invitation is to freely accept the gift of grace that he's given us. But it means more than that. Not just to come and say, this is mine, I'm forgiven, I feel good. It also means to freely give the good gift of grace that Jesus offers everyone. 
It's not just for you to come to this table. This table is meant for everyone. They just don't know it yet. It's not just for you to experience the goodness of God's kingdom where he dwells with us, where he has dominion over all creation and we have a dynasty to come. It's for everyone. They just don't know it yet. His death on the cross was not just for you. It was for everyone. This table is meant to be for everyone, but not everybody knows what it means to be around the table with Jesus. As it's an invitation for us to know what it means for us personally, it's also an invitation for us to share what it means. That Jesus died and rose again, not just for you, but for everyone. And just not everybody knows it yet. So as Jesus sat around the table with his closest friends, even those who would betray him, he invited them into what was to come. And in the same way, we are invited into what is to come. A place of God's kingdom. A dynasty that we are co-heirs to. But it's meant for everyone. And not everyone knows it yet. So when we come to this table, we freely accept the gift it is to come to it. But when we leave this table, we need to freely accept the responsibility to share this gift with everyone. This morning as we come to this table, I want and I pray that you accept this good gift for you. But you don't just take it selfishly. Maybe there's someone you know who needs to know this good gift of grace. Maybe there's a way for you to live it out and demonstrate it, to be a person of the Eucharist. That you can come to this table, but you can live and leave like the Eucharist, given for others, in his goodness for you.